KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Those 50 and older are eligible for the vaccine. A look at those still at high risk. I want you to remember that African-Americans who die, about 25% of those are under 65. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Let's play ball. Petco Park is back open, but the Padres tickets aren't cheap. It's going to be expensive for a while. And I think the key is going to be when more people are allowed to come to the ballparks, the ticket prices will come down. But even then, it's going to be an expensive season for Padres baseball. Plus, a look at how Haitians are facing racism at the border within the immigration system. And San Diego Pride is going virtual this year. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. All of those 50 and older are eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine starting today. But being eligible is just the first step on the road to getting vaccinated. Next up is scheduling an appointment that is riddled with technology challenges and not enough appointments to meet the need. Dr. Bob Gillespie is a sharp physician and the medical director of the San Diego Black Nurses Association. He joins us now. Dr. Gillespie, welcome. Thank you very much. So first, tell me how you and the San Diego Black Nurses Association are involved in the vaccination effort. One of the things that we figured out early on, if you leave it to the grid, that is, if it's the Internet that guides therapy or intervention for vaccines for African-Americans and high-risk populations, it's much less likely to get done. And in fact, if you go into some of the areas that are on the grid in, in Southeast San Diego, San Diego and other places, you won't see the demographic that you would expect to see at those sites getting vaccinations. And there's a number of reasons for that. Internet access, savvy with the internet, hesitancy. So what we figured out, and specifically San Diego Black Nurses figured out, is that we really had to take it off the grid and to go to local churches and local community centers and have a targeted approach to vaccinating those at high risk. That allowed us to not only go and get a, a dedicated population to the point where we're able to vaccinate 97% or greater of the targeted population in those areas, but we also were given the opportunity to deal with any hesitancy issues that might come up that would prevent others from getting vaccinated. In many cases, we're able to convince those who come with the primary vaccinating person convince them to get a vaccination also or to schedule one for a later date. And tell me more about the success you've had with doing these uh, these clinics. I mean, in, do you have a sense of how many people you've, you've been able to get vaccinated? Yes, we do. In fact, if you look at the total events that we've done through San Diego Black Nurses, as well as we have partnered with other groups, it's been over 2,000 people who have been vaccinated. And this has moved the needle, we believe, from a number that roughly... If you looked at the statistics earlier in the month, if you looked at African-Americans who had been vaccinated, it's been between 2 and 2.1% of the total population vaccinated. That's moved up 
to around 2.6% in about a month. And we make up the population in San Diego about 5.1%. So still very much under vaccinated compared to the population, but we've clearly made a dent. We think part of the dent is what we've done as well as a number of other community organizations with the same mindset. And as you mentioned, while there's been a lot of success, the vaccination rate in the black community is still lower than all of the other ethnic groups in the county. Talk to me more about the reasons for that. Well, there's multiple reasons. And I I think some, we certainly know about the history in this country in terms of interaction with the medical system and concerns that many African-Americans have about that history and mistrust. That certainly is a component to what's going on. But I don't want to underestimate the importance of also just having events that are in our communities. Certainly, if you look at flu vaccines or any other type of vaccine or delivered process, it usually goes better when it's delivered by African-Americans to African-Americans. And and the reason for that, if you look at the data, the most trusted messengers in our communities are Black nurses and Black doctors. And that's just from a history of what we've dealt with for so many years. But I think the other point is access is major. You've already pointed out earlier, for everyone, it's extremely difficult. But for some populations, it's even more difficult and and some are less willing to jump through the hoops necessary to make that happen, particularly when there's a hesitancy component already present. And the vaccine superstations, such as the one at the Del Mar Fairgrounds, they've closed multiple times due to vaccine shortages. Has that been an issue you've dealt with? Well, one of the things that when we first started doing our vaccinations in the churches and the community centers, we had the same problem. And what would happen is we may line up 400 people and could only do 200, or we'd have to back off on the numbers we wanted to vaccinate because our goal is a minimum of 500 per week with our, with our centers that we're doing this. We've been fortunate as time has gone on, one, because we, I think because of the disparity, we know the importance of affecting this population and it's become easier in some ways for us to get vaccine. One, because we're able to make a difference in that community group. And you know there's this equity index where you're really trying to affect those who have the least vaccinated in the population. So I think the county has certainly worked with us more. And I think also as we have more vaccines become available, it's gonna even be easier for us now that we have the J&J vaccine in addition to the Moderna and the Pfizer. So the answer to your question has gotten easier, but initially it was quite difficult. Well, now that those 50 and older are eligible, do you anticipate vaccine shortages to still be an issue? I do believe there'll be a short-term issue, but as our government and local agencies try to ramp up production, it will be less of an issue. But nonetheless, in the short term, people are still having difficulty getting appointments. And I think this is particularly important that we do more of these community targeted events, because I want you to remember that African-Americans who die, about 25% of those are under 65. So targeting younger people in African-American populations is particularly important because of multiple risk factors and all the other living conditions that increase risk. The same goes for the Hispanic or Latinx community. So the answer to your question, I think long-term, the vaccine uh, numbers will continue to rise, but short-term, we will continue to have challenges. But because of the importance of targeting and trying to decrease equity, I'm hoping the county will continue to work with us to get the highest risk populations vaccinated. And since we know that there will still be challenges, uh, will the Black Nurses Association strategy change now that more people are eligible? 
the strategy will be the same. You go into communities, you find those folks that can go out to our community health workers. You know, we have a campaign with multicultural and other groups, Susan Aflalo and other doctors who go out and we find the high risk patients in, in that community. In fact, that still will go on. The real issue will be how much vaccine we can get. We will have to wait and see. I'm hopeful because we are looking at, again, a high risk group relative to the average that we will still, because of the risk involved, be able to get enough vaccinations to deal with the patients that we're trying to vaccinate. That's yet to be seen, but I'm hopeful. I've been speaking with Dr. Bob Gillespie, a sharp physician who is medical director for the San Diego Black Nurses Association. Dr. Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. San Diego sports fans have reason to celebrate. Today marks not only opening day for the Padres season, but a return to in-person seating at Petco Park. And while fans can return in limited numbers, the cost of attendance won't come cheap. The most modestly priced opening day tickets are listed for hundreds of dollars, with prices surging to the thousands on the secondary market. While the return of fans to the ballpark is a small step back to normality, the sheer cost of these tickets is raising concerns about the average fan's ability to enjoy America's pastime. Joining me to discuss the skyrocketing open day ticket prices is San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, welcome to the program. Andrew, thanks so much for having me on today. Now, going to the ballpark was an expensive proposition well before the pandemic, with fans returning in limited numbers. How can ownership justify such an exorbitant price, even for the nosebleed seating? You know, it's uh, it's economics 101, supply and demand, but the Padres sell their tickets and then there's the secondary market. And while they don't have a uh, direct, you know, operation of that, that that's where the, the astronomical numbers are coming from as you cited earlier in the report, uh, there's just 20% people are allowed in a 40,000 seat stadium. Now, maybe in the old days when the Padres weren't very good, that wouldn't have been as big as problem. That's no longer the case. This team is built for a championship. This team uh, didn't get to feel that energy from their dedicated fans last year when they made their first playoff run since 2006. It's the most beautiful ballpark in one of them in America. So it's like this tsunami of events all coming together in a year where the ticket demand is so great and the ticket supply is so little. So if you're sitting on some season tickets or you're sitting on some tickets and you're on the secondary market, uh, let me know where you buy your new house and I'll come by for a barbecue. <laughs> Jay, full disclosure, I'm not the biggest sports fan in the world, but even I can enjoy a good baseball game at Petco Park. How is in-person attendance going to be different this season? Well, it'll be different with uh, the wearing a mask, except when uh, consuming food or, or beverage, uh, the social distancing, the, the separation of, of fans uh, throughout the stadium. I mean, that's kind of the charm of going to the ballpark you know you're probably going to go with a buddy but you don't know who's going to be sitting on the right or left of you after nine innings you'll know that person pretty well and that, and that's part of the charm so you know it won't be a, a packed crowd and and it'll be uh you know cashless concessions and and hot dog and beers and that stuff so it's going to be a different feel for sure but i think it also emphasizes how important in our life sports is. Everybody is interested in opening day, uh, even if you aren't a, a baseball seam head, as they say, or a real insider guy. Uh, it's like uh, almost Del Mar at the racetrack 
where it's a, a city national a city holiday, if you will, unofficially, where everybody blows off work. Everybody's got an upset stomach and it causes sick and goes to the ball game or, or meets somebody to watch the ball game. And, and that's what's kind of been missing this past year. And with the Padres being so exciting and the anticipation, uh, people want to get back to the ballpark. And if nothing else, it, it'll be like the good old days with sports. It'll give us something to argue about except politics. And that might be refreshing. Now, even with these sky-high ticket prices, do you think today's game will be a sellout? Oh, absolutely. They'll uh, they'll sell every ticket available, and, and there'll be uh, people leaning over the balconies trying to get a view. Uh, every one of the watering holes and taverns and restaurants downtown will be packed with fans, you know, watching it on TV. And and let's face it, that that's how the majority of fans, really, that's how the majority of fans consume uh, athletic events anyway, via television. But particularly with the uh, decreased seating capacity, Padre fans are going to get their Padre fix on TV. But, uh, you know, hopefully as the season goes on, more and more people can attend these games because really that was the missing uh, ingredient of last year's special concoction was the fans in the stands. Experts expect that ticket prices will come down some as the season goes on. Still, it's hard to imagine that given where ticket prices are now, they'll come down to a point that will actually be affordable for most people, especially given the economic hardships that many people in the country are facing right now. Is there any worry that the average fan is just going to be priced out of the in-person sports experience for the foreseeable future? You know, that's a great point and and really is... You know, before the pandemic, you know, baseball was kind of trending in this direction. Uh, you know, let's face it, that was part of baseball's charm. You could go get a ticket for a couple of bucks. You could sit upstairs, you could get a hot dog or beer for $5 and and make a day of it and take your family. That's no longer the case. I mean, you take a family of four to a ball game now, and that, that's a car payment, at least, you know, it, it's expensive. And, and that's some of the worry about, you know, the escalating labor costs, the escalating cost of the stadium. You know, how do you pay for it? You have to increase revenues. One of those revenue streams is, is our ticket sales is ticket sales. So you're you're right on point that baseball is, is walking a thin line here. Now they will uh, argue that the most expensive tickets are downstairs are, are the better ones and the cheaper ones, of course, are upstairs and that balances out. We'll see. But the demand is so great right now. You know, it's all about leverage and you're either the hammer or the nail. And right now, professional sports are the hammer because fans are just desirous to go to a game. But uh, it's going to be expensive for a while. And uh, I think the key is going to be when more people are allowed to come to come to the ballparks, the ticket prices will come down. But but even then, uh, it's going to be an expensive season for Padres baseball. The Padres have been spending a lot of the offseason beefing up their roster. As you mentioned, do you think that the sheer amount of talent in the lineup will keep ticket prices high as the season continues? And are we looking at a catch-22 where the better the team does, the, the less opportunity we'll have to actually see them in person? Uh, that could be true, but that also is offset by increased revenues by the the clubs, which are businesses. So, you know, it is a good team, and you you make a good point. If this was the Padres of old, you know, last year would have been their tenth consecutive losing season, but they turned it around and went to the playoffs. So, if it would have been one of those old Padre teams, and they die on the vine by May and June, and really they're not playing significant games later in the season. I would agree that, yes, the ticket prices would come down because, again, it's all supply and demand. So the demand wouldn't be there. This is a, this team's built to win a championship. A lot of years they were built to be 500. They were built not to be too bad. They were built to just develop the players. This is built 
to win a championship, which means you pay championship prices. I mean, their payroll is a hundred million dollars, hundred eighty million dollars. Uh, they have you know seven hundred eighty-four million dollars tied up in just three players and Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado, and Eric Hosmer. So it it's expensive, and uh, I, I certainly hear hear what you're saying because uh, there's nothing like seeing a bunch of kids at a ballpark. They just bring so much joy to the game, and I hope they can afford to go. Yeah, I hope so too. I've been speaking with San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, thank you. Okay, thanks for having me, Andrew. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Kavanaugh is off today. While much of the focus along the border has been on the arrival of Central Americans seeking asylum, Haitians have also been fleeing violence, political instability, and racism in their journey to border cities like Tijuana. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us how black migrants are treated differently in every step of the asylum process. A community of Haitian migrants has been in Tijuana for nearly a decade, fleeing a devastating earthquake, hurricanes, financial collapse, and now deep political instability and violence as an unpopular president tries to hold on to power in Port-au-Prince. Many Haitians are stuck in Tijuana, fearful that by crossing the border, they'll be sent right back to Haiti, but unable to make a life for themselves in Mexico. When a migrant camp was established in February at the El Chaparral port of entry in Tijuana, hundreds of Haitians set up tents, hoping that they would soon be allowed to declare asylum in the U.S. Dorleon Ito was one of them. He'd been living in Tijuana for a year. He said that Haiti is his country and that he loves it, but it wasn't possible to stay there. There were too many criminals with nothing to do. Ito had spent five years working in Chile, but the discrimination there was intense. He was trying to get into the United States, even though he feared possibly being returned to Haiti. He said if they deport him, he wouldn't live in Haiti. He doesn't have anything there. He wouldn't have the money to leave, though. He's afraid. If he gets sent there, he's worried he'll get killed. A rule known as Title 42 bars the entry of any asylum seekers into the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic. Border Patrol has been immediately sending border crossers back to Mexico or their countries. Since the beginning of the Biden administration, however, more children, families, and single adults have been able to enter the U.S. and continue their asylum claims from inside the United States. But that hasn't held true for Haitian migrants. The Biden administration has removed over 1,200 Haitians from the United States. That's more than during all of Trump's final fiscal year in office. Gurleen Joseph is the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Since 2016, her organization has advocated for Haitians trying to avoid deportation to an unstable and dangerous country. Right now, it's criminal for both the United States and Haiti to agree to send and receive people. When, when they land in Haiti, those people go in hiding. Joseph led a group of Haitian Americans down to Tijuana last month in an effort to connect with the Haitian asylum seekers and make sure they're safe. What they found wasn't reassuring, 
after a couple of weeks, we started seeing some anti-Black sentiments growing within the camp. And then increasing what we have been saying, the vulnerability of Black migrants in Tijuana, in Mexico, the way that they can be targeted, they cannot blend in. Christian Nestor is a Haitian-American lawyer who works with Haitian Bridge Alliance. He says that many Haitians have gone broke in Mexico. So a lot of Haitians are stuck here and their workers' authorization has expired. So they don't really have any way to make any money. He doesn't believe that the treatment of Haitians in the American immigration system or the role that the U.S. has played in supporting the current regime in Haiti has deterred anyone from coming to the U.S. Even with the checkered kind of history, the United States is the land of opportunity and people really want that chance to live that American dream. Many Haitians have jumped the border fence in recent weeks, tired of the racism and willing to risk being returned to Haiti. Asking around the camp last week, Dorleon Ito was nowhere to be found. Jean-Claude Jean is still holding out hope. He's one of the last Haitians in the migrant encampment at El Chaparral. But even his patience is wearing thin. He says he'll stay in Tijuana another two or three weeks only. Then he'll cross. Whatever happens to him, he'll have to accept it. He doesn't want to live the way he's had to live here. Joining me now is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler. Max, welcome. Good to be here. So tell me more about the conditions that are forcing Haitians to Tijuana. So Haitians have been leaving the island for many years, but it really intensified after the earthquake in early 2010. That followed a hurricane, Hurricane Matthew, which intensified people leaving. And lately, there's been a constitutional crisis where a unpopular president right now is, is refusing to leave office, claiming that, you know, they have another year in office. The United States is supporting his claim, but people on the streets in Haiti are rising up against him. That has sparked a, a new wave of political violence. Uh, so people have been leaving Haiti in many years. And, and right now, a lot of people are very fearful of having to return there. So why haven't Haitian migrants been able to declare asylum here in the U.S.? So for at least since the beginning of the pandemic, there has been a code in place, Title 42, which restricts access of any asylum seekers into the U.S. That's been lessened uh, under the Biden administration, where children are now allowed in um, and some families have been allowed in. But on the whole, Haitian migrants have been denied the ability either through remain in Mexico, uh, which, you know, really only applied for the most part to Central Americans or, or other, you know, migration policies. Haitians are almost always excluded. And you mentioned the Biden administration has removed more than 1,200 Haitians from the U.S., which is more than all of Trump's final fiscal year in office. Why is the treatment of migrants from Haiti so different here in the United States? The treatment of migrants of Haiti is in line with the treatment of all black asylum seekers and all black immigrants in the U.S., which is they're just simply subject to higher bond amounts when they're in immigration detention. Uh, they're denied their asylum claims more often. It's uh, the inequities that we see in our own criminal justice system bears out with the very much intertwined immigration system. So people are removed and deported at just much higher rates for simply uh, being black. This unequal treatment within the American immigration system isn't new. America has always been quick to deport Haitians or turn them back around. Can you talk about where that stems from? 
If you look at other Caribbean migration, Cuban migrants have been treated differently. Um, and again, this goes back to skin color. There is a long legacy of immigration and customs enforcement and Border Patrol using Haiti as a testing ground for retributive uh, policies. Right after the earthquake um, in 2010, the first thing that the United States did was have the Coast Guard set up a perimeter around the island to make sure that people couldn't leave it. Um, and that is something that is in line with how Border Patrol and Immigration and Customs Enforcement has viewed Haitian migrants and Black migrants in, in general. Hmm. Tell me more about the anti-Black sentiment within the camp at the El Chaparral Port of Entry in Tijuana. In what ways are Black migrants experiencing racism and discrimination in Mexico? When I was there on the first day that the camp began to be set up, it was at least 400 uh, Haitian migrants. And then over the weeks, that number has been diminishing. And I've talked to people and they've been denied, um, you know, abilities to enroll their kids in the in the makeshift school that's been set up there. They've been excluded from food distribution, from toy distribution uh, by church groups uh, that are providing aid. So it's basic discrimination that all, unfortunately a lot of these migrants are used to from having spent years in Central and South America on their way to the U.S. Wow. And so how are Haitian migrants dealing with that? How are they dealing with the racism coming from people in Mexico, the American immigration system, and then the real consequences of being sent back to Haiti? Yeah, I mean, they're being put in a pretty impossible situation. Many of them are making the decision to jump the fence and come to the U.S. and claim asylum. Uh, some people have left the camp in Tijuana and called back weeks later or even days later in Haiti saying, I was removed that quickly, don't do it. While others, very few, I should note, have been allowed to continue their asylum claim from inside the U.S. Uh, so that gives people hope that if you cross the border outside of a port of Entry, which is not open right now to asylum seekers, there is a chance, a slim chance, that you will be able to find some semblance of safety in the U.S. Um, very few people have um, decided to stay in Tijuana long term. There is a community there. But if you ask them, if you go down the line and ask them, would you rather be stuck in Tijuana or come to the U.S.? Of course, they're going to say, I'd come to the U.S. Even people, I, I spoke with one restaurant owner who had uh, a restaurant in Tijuana. He'd been in, in Tijuana so long, he served Haitian food. Um, and he was there on the first day that people thought they would be allowed to enter the United States for asylum, because it's really not even a choice for them. They want to enter the United States. Hmm. So what are advocacy groups doing? I mean, in what ways are they able to, to help? So groups like the uh, Haitian Bridge Alliance, Baji, which is an advocacy group for black immigrants, um, they're really trying to get people legal help once they enter the United States to stop these deportations and removals when um, people do go into immigration custody, to get people out of immigration custody if there's a high bond, and to secure um, temporary protected status for Haitians given the ongoing political crisis in their country. And I should add that that's actually a bipartisan issue. Senator Republican senators like Margo Rubio are actually in favor of temporary protected status for, for Haitians dealing with the current uh, political crisis. And uh, that's something that the Biden campaign and Biden himself promised to Haitians when he was campaigning in Florida this past year and uh, has yet to move on. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. Max, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
San Diego Pride is one of the largest civic events in San Diego County. At least it was before the pandemic. Last summer, the organization held an entirely virtual event. Many were hoping by this summer, things would be back to normal. But with the uncertainty surrounding COVID-19, the organization announced this week it would not be holding a large in-person festival or parade. It will, however, have a series of smaller in-person events and another virtual festival that people can watch from home. Joining me to talk about this decision is Fernando Lopez, Executive Director of San Diego Pride. Fernando, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. What led to this decision to hold both the virtual and smaller in-person Pride events? You know, it was a really challenging process of months of talking to our community partners, public health officials, looking at our finances, and just seeing what was possible. So we wanted to try to find a way that could still uphold the integrity of finding joy in community space, while also giving access to folks who weren't quite ready to leave their homes. Last year, Pride created several hours of streaming content for people to watch from home. I recall you saying you all became like TV producers, basically. What will this year's Pride look like, both the virtual festival and these smaller in-person events? So yeah, you're you're so right. Last year, we pivoted all of our programming online. We have over 30 programs that we do year round. And we reached over 750,000 people through that programming. I think this year, it's going to be more of highlighting some of our awardees, uh, some of our um, activists in the community, and a lot of LGBTQ artists, poets, dancers, and just different arts and culture that is really coming through our LGBT community uh, in the virtual aspect. Um, For the in-person stuff, I think one of the things that maybe if you haven't ever been to the festival, folks might overlook is it's really produced by not only us, but about a hundred different community partners. So there's uh, LGBT artists, there's Black culturally competent resources and art. There's uh, things for the Latinx community, the API community, trans healthcare, STI testing and HIV testing. Uh, And so what we're really trying to do is uphold the integrity of all the different cultural and resource areas that we have, but do them remotely and safely throughout all throughout San Diego County. So we'll, we'll see how we do in a few months. How has San Diego Pride been impacted financially by the pandemic? Well... Our uh, obviously our huge big fundraiser that we produce to put on all these year round programs is the parade and festival. And so we went from being a $4 million organization to just over a $700,000 organization uh, overnight. So it was quite the decrease. Uh, But one of the great things that we did was about five years ago, our board put us on a strategic pathway uh, and plan to make sure that we rebuilt our reserves to a point where we could sustain a a year of tragic financial loss um, and and some sort of unforeseen incident. And so I was happy that we we got there a couple of years ago. So when COVID hit, we made the decision to operate at a loss so we could continue producing these year-round programs for the LGBT community and, and try to provide access and space and in these virtual, you know, sort of spaces that we became our new reality last year. So that's sort of how we adapted to this and happy to say that we're still financially, you know, hobbling along. We're maybe taking another financial loss this year. We'll see how the government relief goes and fundraising goes, but we're, we're committed to seeing through this year, even if we have to take another financial loss, but 
our, our pre-planning and reserves allow us to do that. This past year has seen both advancements and setbacks for the LGBTQ community and equality. Why are Pride events still important in 2021? It's so important, I think, for folks to recognize that not every person who is LGBT has a safe and welcoming environment in their day-to-day life, whether that's in their homes, their workplaces, or their institutions of faith. And so what Pride really provides is an opportunity to be safe, an opportunity to find community and newfound family and connections. And I know, you know, we had some huge victories, right, over the last several years for marriage equality and equal rights. Um, as we're getting closer and closer to to that equity for our community, and, and still, LGBTQ hate crimes have been on the rise, including here in San Diego. Uh, we've seen our rights under attack, especially for the trans community, uh, all over the television, which is re-traumatizing, in particular for our trans youth. Our rights are being debated in Congress. They're uh, being debated at the Supreme Court this year. And so we know that what we are fighting for is a community for uh, equity, for equal treatment under the law. That work is still not done. And so part of what Pride provides is a huge amount of visibility and education for our community around that rights and equity. And the other place is just a place to find community connection and safety that we don't always have. So Prides are still so needed. They're still so important here in San Diego, all across the country and the world. And for many folks uh, all over the world, pride is the first thing that you go to or the first way that you see an LGBT movement really starting to spark itself is by just finding community and giving that community visibility. I've been speaking with Fernando Lopez, executive director of San Diego Pride. Fernando, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrew. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Cavanaugh is off today. Michael Gene Sullivan is a writer, director, and actor. His latest play, The Great Con, will close out San Diego Rep's Black Voices 2021 play reading series that launched last month. Sullivan's play will have a live online reading and post-show discussion on Monday. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the playwright about challenging stereotypes in his work. Michael, you are part of the San Diego Rep's Black Voices Project for 2021. Tell us a little bit about The Great Con. Great Con is really a play about, well, it starts, it's two teenagers, two Black teenagers trying to figure out who they are. How do they fit in to a culture that in many ways would just prefer that they were dead? And how do you define yourself in a culture that's always trying to define you as a potential perpetrator or as a runaway slave or just dangerous? Is it easier to struggle against those stereotypes to define yourself? Or is it easier to just get on the track with the greased rails and slide right into those stereotypes? And the two main characters, uh, Ant uh, Girl and the uh, and Jaden, teenage boy, are kind of they meet in an unusual circumstance in that she is being assaulted. This happens before the play starts. She's being assaulted by some boys that are kind of her friends, but now they're all teenagers and they see her only sexualized now. 
And so they're attempting to actually rape her. And he and Jaden, who is an utter nerd, saves her. And so now he's kind of like his mother has had to change schools for him and had to move across town because she's very concerned that those boys will find him and hurt him. Uh, so he's trying to figure out, well, should I be tough since I'm now in danger? Should I should I start acting tougher because he's been such a nerd all this time? Meanwhile, aunt and for name's Antoinette. She's like, well, I've always had to be tough to be a, a young black girl. And this is how the society sees me. But I don't want to be that. I just want to be a teenager. And so how they're defining themselves and redefining themselves kind of cross. And then Genghis Khan shows up. What made you want to kind of throw that twist in and bring in Genghis Khan? I was kind of doing a couple of things. I, I was writing some other shows and this idea of why is it that black teens are always seen as older than they actually are? You know, the police go, oh, this kid, he was so big. And it's like he's nine or a black girl being pre-sexualized. This idea of how the society dictates who you are, how they write you in history determines how you're treated in the present. And that will determine how you're treated in the past. And so as I was writing it and I decided, well, Jaden, when he I want him to go too far. I want him to go to, to worship somebody who's the biggest badass in history. And I was like, Genghis Khan. And so I kind of put that aside in my head. And at the same time, my wife said, you know, there's a book on Genghis Khan that just came out. You should read this because I was a history major. And so I read this new book on Genghis Khan. And I read other ones and I was like, this is about propaganda. This is about who writes your history. This is who decides what you were. And that determines kind of your future for you and your people and for the working class or for generations ahead or for your gender or whatever. I realized that the idea of what was something that the whole audience was going to think they knew. Now, most of the audience is always going to go, well, we think we understand black people. No. Um, but I was like, but that's too obvious. So I thought, what about Genghis Khan? That's somebody that everybody in the audience has heard of. And so that idea of having this other very central thing to twist the audience, to make them go, I didn't know that, makes them also have to go, I didn't know that about these teenagers. Those kind of breaking all of the stereotypes for the audience. So they leave really questioning, what do I know? And who have I been listening to? Whose stories have I been listening to that have framed how I see the world? How do they see me? And how wrong have I been? Michael, can you give us a little taste of the play by reading a selection? This is a scene between Jaden, Teenage Black, boy, and Temujin, more commonly known in history as Genghis Khan. Now, uh, Temujin and Jaden uh, uh, meet in his, um, in his bedroom one night, and Jaden's been showing him around town, and they come back right after Jaden's mother has left the room. So they're sneaking back into Jaden's room. Ah, here it is. Jaden pulls out a DVD box. Call of Duty. Yeah. Modern warfare. See, you were asking about modern wars, and, and I thought I'd show you some. See, this game will teach you what you need to know. That place you took me, Chinatown. Chinatown. Pretty much every city has one. Why? Only place Chinese people were allowed to live back in the day, I guess. You know, Japantown, Koreatown, Mongol town. Never heard of one. Okay, you can use the character I already built. He's a sniper and I'm dead. You'll respawn. A what? See, there you are. Now, now, I want, to, I want you to show me all of your cool. I'm dead again. And you're back. No, wait, what? You can't just rush into battle. But I am supposed to kill. That's what the guns are for. Look, hold this button to aim and push and see, fire. Bam, see, the guy's dead. He was so far away. That's what being a sniper means. But there was no danger. I could not see his fear. Where was the fun in that? 
Oh, you want fear? How about dark souls? Dark souls. Is it also modern? Nah, but it's got lots of close up danger and fear. So I am Asian. Yeah. And you're black. Yes. But you are not actually the color black. You're brown. I mean, people are various shades of brown and pink. White. The pink ones are white. So the brown ones are black. The pink ones are white. And everyone else is Asian, which isn't a color. Oh, except for the Indians from India. They're brown, but they're Asian. And the Native Americans are also brown, not black. And they used to be called Indians. What are they called now? Native Americans. What do they call themselves? I don't know. Why don't you know what people call themselves? I don't know. In my Khanate, everyone was adopted as a Mongol. It didn't matter what religion or family or other tribe you had been with. We were a tribe you could join, the people of the felt walls. We made our tents out of a material called felt and Mongolian barbecue. What? No, no, no Mo Mongol town, but we do have Mongolian barbecue. You know, it's this big, round, hot metal table. We didn't do that. But how would we carry a big metal table around on our horses? That was great. And you mentioned you are a history major, and you do bring history into this uh, in interesting ways. Is that something you kind of knew beforehand that you wanted to do, or did that kind of just happen as you were writing this story? Well, it kind of developed. In most of the stuff, the plays that I write have are, are very activist. I'm always trying to make the audience uh, see and understand an injustice and challenge it in them and then go outside and challenge it in society. Like they always say, if you can only change one person's mind, you failed miserably. You got to do more than that. So I need people to get out there and overthrow things. And I just finished my, uh, I have an adaptation of uh, George Orwell's 1984 that's been playing around the country. And the line in that show of he who controls the present controls the past, meaning they get to write history and he who controls the past controls the future because you can determine how people are going to act very much is part of everything that I write of redefining things. And I just love history. Also, it's like it, I was either going to go into theater or become a history teacher and theater snatched me up. I want to thank you very much for talking about your play, The Great Con. Oh, thank you. COVID-19 infection rates are dropping in California, yet singing in public is still considered a high-risk activity. So the University of California, San Francisco, and the San Francisco Opera have teamed up to develop a new type of mask to keep performers safe as they return to doing live productions. KQED's Chloe Veltman reports. That's Sunziana Roman on Zoom, demoing the new mask she's invented for singers. Roman is a classically trained soprano who also happens to be a professor of surgery at UCSF. Roman is part of a group of UCSF medical experts who've been meeting virtually with San Francisco opera staffers every week since last June to talk about what it would take to bring live opera back. You have to have good ventilation. You still have to have some separation uh, from each other. And ultimately, you need to have a lot of good testing. Roman's new face covering is also part of this effort. She says she prototyped the invention at her kitchen table from old surgical masks. It was really designed to get singers practicing, working together, being in close proximity without worrying so much about aerosol. 
Aerosols are this fine mist of tiny particles produced while singing that tend to float in the air for extended periods of time. This makes them potentially more hazardous than the larger droplets created by regular speaking, which generally fall to the ground more easily. A Washington choir practice turns deadly. The media has reported on several singing-related COVID-19 outbreaks over the past year, including one in Washington state that left two choristers dead. In tests conducted at UC Davis, the new mask proved to be almost as efficient at filtering out particles as the gold standard N95. It has a really nice um, drawstring at the bottom that goes underneath your chin to ensure again that there isn't aerosols escaping through the bottom of the mask. San Francisco Opera resident artist Anne-Marie McIntosh got to try out and offer feedback on the new mask. She says it's made of cotton, washable, has plastic boning to keep it off the face. And also it has a roll-up uh, extension at the bottom, which you can open up to uh, like drink water out of so that you're not having to take the mask on and off in rehearsal and putting yourself and others in danger. Macintosh unfurls the long flap at the front of the mask. It flops around like the trunk of a dejected elephant. Not very flattering. But Macintosh says after months of being stuck in her apartment doing rehearsals on Zoom, she can live with the aesthetics. We're creating a new trend here. Uh... <laughs> Other opera companies have also been developing their own masks. Opera San Jose general director Corey Dastor says she can see them becoming part of a performer's everyday toolkit alongside throat lozenges well after this pandemic ends. If it reduces our risk to get the flu or to get any kind of run-of-the-mill rhinovirus, that will stay. Back in San Francisco, soprano Anne-Marie McIntosh is about to get her first chance to sing before a live audience in more than a year. Together with a bunch of fellow San Francisco opera artists, Macintosh is ramping up for a series of live outdoor performances in late April and May, so she's getting used to practising in her new mask. Macintosh says rehearsing in the mask isn't ideal. It gets a little stuffy in there after a while. But she says she'll do whatever it takes to bring her music to live audiences once again. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.